Hear the word of the Lord. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated, friends. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, as we now turn to the preaching of your word this morning, We ask that you would do what we are all entirely incapable of. Would you please breathe life into your word? Would you open our hearts and speak to us through your word? We know that nothing we can do can bring that about. So we ask that you would. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. The salt of the earth, it came to pass. My brother's keeper, a moment in time, the signs of the times. I'm sure you're familiar with these phrases. You've probably even used a few of them. But do you know where they came from? More specifically to our point this morning, do you know who they came from? All of those phrases entered the English language, really the English lexicon, through William Tyndale. William Tyndale. He provided us with the very first English translation of of the Bible from the original languages, from Greek and from Hebrew. He, his efforts in translation, rather, made up the vast majority of the text that would become the King James Bible, which 400 years later, today, this last year, was still the number one most selling copy of new Bibles, of any translation. But I want to draw your attention to here is is not his work and his life, but more importantly, the events that led up to his martyrdom. As you can imagine, the Catholic Church in the era of the Reformation was not exactly excited about a man who was making his own translation of the Bible. They didn't support it. In fact, they were very much against it. Murderously so. So, through an unnamed British nobleman, a man whose name has been lost to history, they enrolled the help of one Henry Phillips. 
Now, Phillips was deeply in debt, and he'd been given a gift by his father to pay the entirety of his debt, but he had gambled it away. And so, desperate for money, he agreed to deliver over Tyndale for monetary gain. He quickly ingratiated himself into Tyndale's circle and became a good friend of Tyndale. One day he invited himself to lunch with Tyndale. And so while they were walking into town, they approached an alleyway. He said, please go first. And he stood behind Tyndale. And unbeknownst to the great reformer, Phillips had set up an ambush. Two guards jumped out to arrest Tyndale And standing over him, history records Phillips is pointing down at Tyndale as a sign that this was the man to capture him. It is eerily like our story today. Perhaps too much like our story today to be fully believed. I bring it to your attention this morning, not just as a second story of betrayal, but as a second story of betrayal motivated by a man's particular weakness. We know from our previous sermons in the book of Mark that Judas was a lover of money. In the same vein, Phillips was clearly a lover of money. No one else would gamble away money to pay a debt. The only reason you do that is because you hope that there'll be some left over after you pay the debt. And this is how Satan always works. Oh, to be sure, it's not always the love of money, but he always attacks you where you are weakest. Now, surely you would never betray Jesus for money. Or maybe you would. Maybe you do. Maybe every single time you go to work, you throw your Christian ethics right out the window. But maybe it's not money for you. What is it, friends, that tempts you to betray Christ? Is it a desire for power, the esteem of others, personal pleasure? What is it, friends, that tempts you to betray Christ? Where does Satan attack you with efficacy? Beloved of God, would our text today be a balm to your soul and equip you to stand against the evil one? Because what we will see today is that Jesus is faithful even when everyone betrays him. Jesus is faithful even when everyone betrays him. And we see this in three movements. As Jesus is ambushed by the conspirator, arrested by the crowd, and abandoned by his companions. Jesus is ambushed by the conspirator, verses 43 through 45, arrested by the crowd, verses 46 through 49, and finally abandoned by his companions, verses 50 through 52. So let us begin with our first movement as we see Jesus being ambushed by the conspirator, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, okay, let's take a moment here. Seven words in. But let's try to get our bearings and see where we're at in the story. As Mark does so often, he jumps from one scene right into the next and he uses this word immediately to bridge the gap. Which 
leads us to ask, immediately following what? So let's step back in this evening, earlier this evening, and go to the upper room. In the upper room, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then he feeds them a meal. Following the meal, he institutes the Lord's Supper, and at some point in there, either just before the Lord's Supper or, or just after, scholars disagree, Judas goes out to betray him. Following the meal, he and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays. You guys heard this preached last week. He begs that the disciples would stay awake and pray with him, but they keep falling asleep. After rousing them three separate times, he essentially says, well, your time to pray is up. While he was still speaking, verse 43, Judas came, one of the 12. And with him, a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Friends, this has to be for us a gut-wrenching verse. Judas. Who is Judas? One of the 12. This is one of the men who lived with Jesus for three years every day. This is a man who counted the cost and whatever he had behind him, he left to follow with Jesus. We don't know what that was, but we know that he turned away from it. This is a man who has seen Jesus do an uncountable number of unfathomable miracles. He's seen Jesus silence a storm with a word. He's seen Jesus give sight to the blind. He's seen lepers healed. He's seen lame walk. He was even there when Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. A man who had been dead for days got up and walked out of his tomb because Jesus told him to. Judas was one of the 12. He walked with Jesus. But it was all lost on him. He did not understand that he himself was blind and needed Jesus to restore his sight. He did not understand the leprosy of his own sin nor his lameness in walking in the ways of righteousness. Most of all, he did not understand that he himself was a Lazarus dead in his trespasses, and that he needed resurrection just like Lazarus did. He walked with Jesus, but he didn't see it. And we are so quick to condemn Judas, and in some ways rightly so, he is the betrayer. But also, friends, never remember that nothing stops you from being Judas apart from God's grace of restraining your sin. No, Adam has given you everything you need to be a Judas. Adam has given you everything you need to be Judas, and it's what we sing on Good Friday normally. Judas sold you for 30. I'd have done it for less. It is God's grace, not our moral superiority, that makes us and our actions better than that of Judas and of this crowd. Speaking of the crowd, who are they? Well, we know from the text is they were sent by the chief priests and scribes and the elders, which are the three groups that make up the Jewish high court or the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin was a, a governmental body that had some authority within Israel, especially Jerusalem, but, but really was under the Roman government. They were still ruled by the Romans. It is with representatives of the Sanhedrin that Judas negotiates a price for betraying Jesus. And it is here that he sets up a plan to ambush Jesus. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. I genuinely don't know if it can get more insidious than this. This greeting is commonplace in their culture. It is exactly how a Jewish disciple would normally greet their rabbi. But we cannot equate it to a handshake in our culture. We, we, we just can't. Friends, we are much more like the first century people than we are dislike them or unlike them. To be sure, we're separated by 2,000 years, gas-powered engines, electricity, the internet. And yet, at the core of who we are, people created in the image of God, we are exactly like them. I bring that up to say, if to you, the idea of a kiss on the cheek feels more intimate than a handshake, it did to them too. The, the commonplace nature of, of this greeting does not make it any less intimate. Rather, it tells us that the relationship that teacher and disciple had was a much more intimate relationship than our culture normally has. The commonality of this does not make it sting any less. It is still a kiss on a cheek. It is still an affectionate greeting that is supposed to express love, but here expresses betrayal. The greeting of rabbi is supposed to elevate the person greeted so that all around would hear and say, oh, they're a teacher? That, that's someone I can learn about God from? And here, it selects the person for condemnation. It is wicked and duplicitous. It is the ambush by the conspirator. Moreover, it is effective. Look at me now. The arrest, look with me now. The arrest by the crowd, verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. This crowd sent by the Sanhedrin, again, this, this Jewish government body, their role was to care for God's people. They should have been the ones that embraced Christ and instead they send an armed crowd to seize Jesus. A crowd that lays the hands that Jesus made when he individually formed each one of them in the womb. They used those hands to arrest him. All of this, friends, all of this proves that they did not understand who Jesus was. They did not understand the nature of his kingdom. But neither did Peter. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know from other gospel accounts that this is Peter. So he draws, Peter draws one of the two swords the disciples have with them and he strikes a savage blow on the servant of the high priest. Now given this man's role that he is the servant of the high priest, it is likely that he was walking at the head of this armed crowd to oversee what happened and give it an air of authority, of credibility. Peter 
still does not understand how the kingdom will advance. Peter here is trying to be true to his word. I would rather die fighting with you, Jesus, than run away. He knows it's a death sentence. There's an armed crowd. There's two swords. So when given the chance, he violently defends the man that he knows is the son of God. Peter thinks he is doing good. He thinks that he's just proving his claim. But though his sword does not miss the mark, Peter misses the point. He does not understand the scriptures. I fear we have this tendency in us. I fear that we love to fight our perceived enemies more than we love to stand with Christ. Do you find yourself in that position ever, friends? Do you relish the fight? If given the opportunity to respond to the cultural other that exists in your mind, whether that's the woke atheist LGBTQ supporter or the Trump 2024 nationalist, whoever that is in your mind, do you enjoy tearing them down more than offering them the gospel? What would make you happier? Their destruction or their conversion? I fear that we, like Peter, work to their destruction. Now, you may have heard preachers preaching this passage mock Peter, saying, look at that, a sword, he only cuts off an ear. This is a fairly new interpretation of this passage. And, and it can only be in a, in a world where we don't use swords to fight anymore. Because the gruesome reality is, is that if you hit someone's ear and did not cut their shoulder, it's because as you swung the sword, you deflected it off of their skull, and as it bounced off of their skull, it cut their ear. This is a serious blow. Peter is trying to kill this man. And it gives incredibly more depth to Jesus healing him, to Jesus saving his enemy's life. Peter is not firing any warning shots, but it is not the reckoning that Peter thinks that this is. This is not when Jesus comes in judgment. Jesus proves this in other gospel accounts again as he heals this man. But in our passage, Mark makes no mention of the healing. Instead, he records Jesus' response to the crowd, verse 48. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus' point is that he is not an insurrectionist. He is not a bandit. He is not a robber. They were common in this time and place. Men who led armed groups, who would raid baggage trains or plunder caravans. Unsurprisingly, men who did this would surround themselves with armed men. Able men. Men who could fight because sometimes robberies don't go well. And if you're a government, that's a pretty threatening thing for a leader to be surrounded by a group of armed people. And so it was not uncommon for the Roman government to send out soldiers to destroy these people. In fact, this, this same word here 
whether you interpret it as robbers, bandits, insurrectionists, it, it's this idea. This is what we used to describe the men who were crucified on either side of Jesus. This is who they were. This is exactly what many of the people who thought, who were following Jesus, thought he would do. They fully expected him to begin to organize a military force. And undoubtedly, these Jewish officials, who are much more like the Romans, that is, they were busy exploiting God's people for monetary gain, rather than the shepherds that they were supposed to be, that is, the servers and caretakers and examples of God's flock, guiding him into God's presence. Without a doubt, these Jewish leaders were terrified that Jesus would start building his army and that he would overthrow them. Friends, they did not understand why Jesus had come. They had heard him speak, but they had ears not to hear, verse 49. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. They knew Jesus. Moreover, they should have grasped hold of the message that he was preaching in the temple. God himself was there in the temple. The second person of the Trinity was with them in the temple. He spoke to them. God was present in a way that he was never present in all of Israel's history. No sacrifice of atonement was needed. They could approach him. He was there. He dwelt with them. But they did not embrace him in the temple. They did not embrace his teaching. They did not want to embrace him. They wanted to seize him. They wanted to arrest him. Their actions are condemning God. Friends, we cannot move past this too quickly. After 400 years of silence, God's people hear from him again. But now not through a prophet. He's actually there. But they reject him. And in fact, they're afraid of the crowds to arrest him, so they come here and they do it in secret. But to fulfill the scriptures, Jesus provides no resistance. He goes like a lamb led to the slaughter. Friends, you must realize that even with the weapons that they have, the power disparity here is unthinkable. Jesus could have angels slaughter all of them. He could have fire rain down from heaven on them. He could have struck them with lightning. He could have simply had the ground open up and swallow them up. Or he could have just unmade them. The image of a man with a sharpened stick fighting a tank misses it by a mile. But it was not Christ's will to resist. All of this, all of this is in the divine plan. Rather, it is God's will that Christ would be ambushed by the conspirator, that he would be arrested by the crowds. But the disciples don't get it. And so Jesus is abandoned by his companions. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. All of the disciples fled. Every last one of them. Jesus was utterly and completely abandoned. 
Now, I, I think there are two very powerful images at work here from the Old Testament. The first is that of a shepherd. This is what a shepherd would do. A shepherd would confront the threat and the danger to his flock while his sheep ran away. But these men are not sheep. And so while Christ is the good shepherd, these men are men. Also, sheep can't promise, can't vow to you that they will stand beside you. And these men did. So while this is what Jesus foretold what would happen back in verse 26 of this chapter, sorry, verse 27 of this chapter, it does not give these men a free pass. They abandoned Christ. It was foretold that they would, but they are guilty. Now, the other image here is that of the Jewish ceremony of atonement. While one goat bearing the sins of the people is sent running away, the other goat is condemned, seized, and sacrificed. To be sure, this image is even stronger in the story of Barabbas. But I'm going to argue that this image is present here, especially in the recounting of the young man, verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, this young man may be Mark, John Mark, the author of, of this gospel. Many scholars have argued that that is the case. And the most fully presented idea of it being John Mark goes something like this. Jesus and the disciples had the Passover meal in John Mark's family home, in the upper room of John Mark's family home. And after Jesus and the 11 disciples went away to go pray, Judas and the crowd showed back up at this house to arrest Jesus, creating a ruckus and rousing the young man from his sleep. Realizing what's happening, John Mark jumps out of bed, wraps himself in a sheet and runs to go warn Jesus, arriving just at the same time or maybe just after Judas does. Now, of course, the Bible does not record any of this. We have no possible way of knowing if that's what really happened. We don't know who the young man is. What we do know is how he fled. He fled in utter abandonment of everything. Not just Jesus, even his own clothing. Shamefully, he ran away naked. A clear sign of shame ever since Genesis 3. And so the parallel to the scapegoat is clear. He runs away in shame, shame because of sin, escaping immediate death while Christ is delivered over to judgment. Because Christ is faithful while everyone betrays him, we, just like this young man, escape judgment. Remember, friends, all of this, all of this is to fulfill the scriptures. As we continue to progress through the book of Mark, it, it really will seem like everything is spiraling out of control. But none of this is outside of God's control. Even when Jesus is condemned, when he is flogged and then beaten and then nailed to a cross and then crucified, when he dies, all of that, friends, is to fulfill the scriptures. Proven by the fact that he takes back takes up his life again. So what do we 
do with this passage? I mean, how should it affect your life? I have three ideas. First, recognize God's sovereignty and his care for you in all things. Recognize that he was never not in control and that all of this was for his glory and for your good. Because Judas greeted him with false affections, he is our rabbi. Because the crowd seized him, we can embrace him as our savior. Because all the disciples abandoned him and Jesus went alone and bore our guilt and shame on the cross, crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was utterly abandoned, Jesus calls us to himself. Second, check your understanding of God's mission here on earth. Strive with everything you have in you to not be like Judas, the crowd, or the disciples here. Understand, friends, that God's mission is to bring his kingdom through his church. So don't hide in your house reading theology. Read theology and then go to your neighbor. Encourage the saints that you know. Preach to the unbeliever in every aspect and area of your life, at your job, with your family, in recreation. Let no part of your life be unchristian. To adapt Kuiper, there is no moment of your life from which Christ does not call out mine. Finally, know yourself well enough to know where the enemy will strike you. Where are you weak, friends? Go back to the question that we began the sermon with. Where are you weak? The bad news for you is that Satan knows even if you don't. So figure it out. If you are married, ask your spouse. Ask those close to you. Ask your friends, family members. And don't take offense at their responses. Because the good news is that Christ's power is made perfect in your weakness. So when they tell you, come up with a plan to address it. How, how, how do you solve it? What is at the core of your weakness? Believe the gospel, repent, love God and love his people. May we be a people who rest in the sovereign care of Christ, strive to accomplish his work and not our own and resist the evil one. Would you pray with me, friends? Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you speak to us through it. We thank you that you sent Christ, that through him we have reconciliation with you. We ask, Father, that you would comfort us in the assurance that you are in control of all things. Would your spirit empower us to accomplish your mission here on earth? and to resist the evil one as he attacks. Pray all of this in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, would you please stand as we respond to the preaching of God's word or reciting the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Another way that we respond to the preaching of, of God's word, to, to God's word, is by partnering with his churches. We do that by giving of our tithes and offering. Uh, you can do that online or at the box at our, at our greeter table. Friends, would you join with me as we draw near to our God and Father in prayer, concluding with the Lord's Prayer. Please pray with me. O faithful Father, merciful God who abounds in steadfast love, we pray for the people of St. Andrews this morning. For any who suffer, we ask you would comfort them. Would you sustain those who are enduring trials? Would you heal the sick and bind up the brokenhearted? We lift up the Harrises to you. We ask that you would give them an enjoyable trip, that they would be rested when they come back and have a good time with their family. And pray that you would safely return Pastor Craig and Jen to us. We pray also for the Williamsons this morning. We thank you that you have brought them here to us. We thank you for the work that both Pete and Cheryl do for the sake of advancing your kingdom on earth. Would you encourage them that they would never weary in their work and give them profound influence in the lives of the young men and women they disciple? We lift up their children to you. Would they each walk in the light of your gospel and live a life of repentance and worship? Please give Pete and Cheryl wisdom as they parent their children in different stages of life. We ask that you would work out the details with their insurance claim on the car and the insurance would pay. And we ask that you would meet their financial needs in fundraising. Oh, faithful Father, merciful God who abounds in steadfast love, we pray for your church globally. We pray that you would give your gospel success overseas. Please raise up leaders to shepherd your flock especially in areas that are hostile to the gospel. We pray for the church in Russia. Would she grow in number, in depth of love for you, and in her impact on the culture? Please protect our brothers and sisters over there against the evils of their government and give them your peace. O faithful Father, merciful God, who abounds in steadfast love, we pray for our country. We ask that you would bring true revival to Yakima, to Washington, to our nation. Please strengthen your church here that she would resist the lies of our culture. Would you save our leaders, both local and national, and give influence to godly men and women? Oh, faithful Father, merciful God who abounds in steadfast love, we thank you that despite our consistent failures, you are faithful. We thank you that Christ has done for us what we could not do and that through him we are reconciled to you. And we now pray as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, glory forever. Amen.